Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. It's uh, New Year's Eve's coming up. And we're not going out this year. And I, I don't know won't go out much anymore. I mean, I used to perform when I did stand-up. But it's so funny because people just go out and they get so damn hammered. And it makes no sense because then you're starting off the next year feeling like crap. I mean, people wake up with a hangover, and I mean, I know as you get older, I mean, I'm, I'm over 50, and I, I get, when I get a hangover, it's for a few days. It's not like when I was 21 or 22, I would get up, I can go to class in college. Now, I'm like on the couch till 7 o'clock at night. So I don't make it, it doesn't make any sense. So you people, when you go out, just don't drink so much, because in your New Year's resolution, you have to start at a day late. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my friend Rob Welch told me. My friend Rob Welch, a guy I've known forever, is friends with, uh, he said, you should get Joe Napoli on your show. And then and, and Joe said, he's not friends with Rob. Rob's a stalker. And then I sent Rob, I said, stop stalking Joe Napoli. And so, Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah, no, Rob, I, I, this is a true story. I, I jog uh, a lot. And uh, I was jogging down the street, you know, in my neighborhood. And uh, all of a sudden, this car just pulls over like a cop car and a guy runs out of the car and charges towards me you know so i i'm like taken aback a little bit and i'm going holy crap i'm this guy's going to try to you know steal my little iphone or whatever and he, and the guy goes whoa 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 man uh, i'm cool listen my name is robert welch and uh, i'm a i'm a um uh, 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 uh what did he say uh, he goes uh uh, I may. Uh, I write. I wrote this book, and you gotta have this book, man. Okay. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm a. I'm a producer. I'm. The, and I was like, calm down, calm down. But he was so excited. And then he turned out his uh, grandfather was Gillespie. Gillespie. Right. Who won the uh, Academy Award for. Um, for Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Which I have a picture of me with that Academy Award at their house. Yeah, and those yeah. things are heavy. I don't know yeah. if they have you, have you, have you. I did. He, when I went to his home, he made me pick it up. It is heavy. They're heavy. I know. It's and, incredible. And he's a big stand-up fan. And yeah. So, and you know, you, you've done... Oh, he's a great guy. He's a brilliant guy, actually. Oh, yeah. Very brilliant computer guy. savvy. And as I said, you said these great Christmas Eve parties. We used to, They had a Santa Claus that you would stick your hand in his ass. Oh, God. It was a paper mache Santa Claus. Not a real Santa Claus. It's paper mache. And then you would pull out uh, scratches or gift cards and you're like oh, sometimes wow. you come out like you'd be like wow you know i mean you go to a party and it's just you know yeah. but we want to talk about you okay so now now you're from michigan i am from michigan okay. now as a Originally. kid as a kid were you funny or i mean did you watch comedy i mean what got you into this whole uh, business because you do comedy you act you do you've been working I, forever. I i absolutely was the class clown my my objective was to get more attention than the teacher and uh, I, I did that, but I did more. When you said what got me in the, it was it was Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello. I came from that world, and then as I got a little older, my world changed to Bill Cosby, uh, George Carlin, and Richard Pryor. Those were my three biggies, and I would actually memorize their stuff and then go into school and 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 you know uh, just uh, repeat it for all the kids there and make them laugh. But then I also got into impressions. So um, I, I always knew that uh, I was going to be in this business one way or another, and, and that's how it started, basically. So the impressions, because it's so funny, because when I was a kid, you know, well, we all we all watched Rich a little, you know, and that was a thing, and we all, and Rich... I did a show. It was my very, very first show. I just posted it on YouTube. Um, I didn't get paid for it, but uh, they gave me a room uh, at the MGM in Las Vegas, and it was the very first HBO special. Okay. And he went through the audience and he did his little thing. And we're going to let now you, the audience, try to do some impressions. And then he went to actually well-known comedians today. I can't remember the other ones except myself. And we all stood up and we did a bit from our act. And I did Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell, which was my big thing back then, back in 1979 when I started. So, yeah, so you started, and it's funny, because now, how did you, as a kid, I mean, when, when did, what age did you start doing impressions? Uh, probably in uh, uh, <clears throat> junior high, but I can't remember the impressions. But, but high school... I'll, I'll, mainly then, a lot of teachers and a lot of celebrities. Well, see, I always wonder about the celebrities, and because we come from a different age, where you know now you can just pick up your iPhone and you can look at it and do an impression, and you know what it sounds like. For us, though, you had to sit there and you had to get the, the cassette player, and then you had to play it, and then you had to rewind it. How did you get good at them? I mean, how did you sit there? I mean, because when we what we hear in our voice is not the same. Like me doing <laughs> Paul Lind is not is not you know, it's not a Paul Lind. Was that Paul Lind? Yeah, see, I was just. <laughs> laugh 
<laughs> it's more like Charles Nelson Riley, I think. I used to do the Paul Lynn okay. laugh. I think every comedian. Can you do it? Well, I haven't done yeah. it in 50 years, but. It, <laughs> exactly. You know, it was kind of a gay cackle right. in a way. But uh, I. Oh, man, he was a genius on Hollywood Squares. But that's exactly what I used to do. I used to record these people, just like you said, sit there with a tape recorder. And just play it over and over and over. My father thought I was retarded. And just over and over again until I thought I had it. But some of them come naturally. But my voice, as I explained to my son, uh, who does unbelievable voices today, uh, my voice has changed. And I can't do the impressions that I did. Listen, I used to do all of the candid phones for Rick D's in the morning. Can we mention Rick Dees? Yeah, you can mention whoever you want. <laughs> okay. so, I've, I've, I've had Shadow Stevens on a Phil Henry oh, okay. on, so you can mention whoever oh, you want. Okay. Well, Phil Henry, oh my God, there's a guy. Genius. Genius. Absolute genius. And I love his humor where, you know, because I did that. I did all the um, candid phones, I call them crank calls, on Rick Dees, but mine are clean. And it's much harder to be clean than the guys like the jer- uh, jerky, the boys. jerky boys. Yeah. Now, when you were a kid, did you do crank calls? Were you a crank caller when you were a kid? Did you do that? Or was that later in your life? I, I did it a little bit for uh, neighbors and stuff. Okay. Like, I had one friend who is now uh, um, the fire chief of Southfield. I could do his father perfectly. And I actually could go in their home and do the father and get the other children to do what I asked asked them to do one was in the shower once and i called him out as the father and the kid came running out of the shower naked and wet in front of the entire family that's funny. that's how good i was okay but my voice has changed as you know when you hit like 45 50 so i'm uh, i'm kind of amazed when you hear like rich little still be able to do the voice because my voice has changed i can't do them the way yeah, i used to that, that, that does change because your voice gets deeper or just something or just your range changes that's about the singers now like these silly guys still sound great and you're like Wait a second. Like people go, oh, well, the Stones don't sound like they used to. <laughs> right. They sound right. pretty good when Keith, Mick Jagger's seventy, but he's still belting it out. Right. Right. So you're you're in you're up in the Michigan area, and you're get out of high school. I, I actually grew up uh, an hour south of Detroit, okay. which is in the suburbs. I grew up like in Burbank or Sherman Oaks or whatever. Now, was there a comedy? Did you have a place to go to? Was no there a comedy scene. Now, it, how did you get started actually hitting stage? Okay. Time? Well, this is what's weird. I quit college with three classes to graduate. I broke because my friend, who I didn't know at the time, who is not my friend anymore, uh, he was um, failing out of uh, uh, college. And he told me he had to take a semester. He wanted to take a semester off. And he said, let's go to California and be actors and stuff. So I quit with three classes left, broke my father's heart, came out here. And then after that, uh, initial three, four months, he went back home and I couldn't, I couldn't look my dad in the eye. So I stuck it out here, sleeping in cars, sleeping on people's couches. And, uh, you know, luckily it turned out very well for me. But, um, in 1979, uh, I had me, I, I moved out in September of 79 and then like January, February, I became a comedian at the comedy store. But I was just a Monday nighter. And then within um, about a month or so, somebody got Mitzi to look at me. And I was sitting there with her. And one of the comedians, oh, Harris Pete, who used to be the uh, the doorman there, he walked over to the booth and he said, hey, hey uh, Queenie, he called her Queenie because she's the queen of comedy. Queenie, Barry Diamond canceled. And she turned to me and she goes, okay, Napoli, you better be effing funny. And she put me on stage. Well, the time is imperative here. 10 o'clock, Friday or Saturday night. I can't remember the night, right? That is the George Miller spot. I don't know if you remember George Miller. Yes, yes. David Letterman's best friend. Genius. Always got the 10 o'clock spot. I went up and destroyed the room. Now, they're in a great mood anyway, but that's the spot, right? In the original room. Main room wasn't even open at that time. And I did so well, she she made me a regular. At that point, Mike Binder, who is now a huge director, has, has a, a new, new Kevin film, Costner coming out. New Kevin Costner movie coming out called Black and White. Also from Michigan, grew up about a mile and a half from me. We never knew each other. I met him out here. He kind of uh, encouraged me and took me in and helped me out. 
he told me there's a new comedy club opening up in Detroit uh, called the Comedy Castle, and he got me to open for him. My first paying gig, which was Air Home. That's it. No, no food, no nothing else, just my trip home. But at least I got to go home and see right. my parents. And we opened the Comedy Castle uh, in 1979, 1980, right, right in there, somewhere in there. And now it's a huge place over there in Royal Oak. Mark Ridley. Mark Ridley's. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, it's funny because you said, you know, when you did the, the great spot and you killed... Um, Back then, there wasn't as many comics. So when you guys did good at the comics, I remember, well, Tom Dreesen said when he did the uh, Tonight Show, everything went crazy. But when, right. you, when you did that spot, you must have got a lot of heat. People must have said, this guy's got some bits because I know you start opening for a lot of big acts too. I mean, how long did it take you to start? You had that 10 o'clock spot. Did you become a regular at that time? At right, right away. Okay. Right away, she started working me. And then... You know, back then they had uh, a lot of comics would get showcases, which meant like uh, they would have maybe the people from NBC come in. So you would try to get on as close to that comedian as possible so other people could see you. And uh, that's what kind of happened to me. I started just, she started working me a lot and giving me those spots between 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock when the industry people came in there and people saw, oh, this is a funny guy, clean. I'll tell you one big thing that really changed for me. There was another uh, competitive club uh, uh, in town called The Laugh Stop. And the booker there, Howard Tressman, God rest his soul, great guy, loved me. And he had me open for a couple of comedians. I don't want to tell you who, but they complained about me, saying they didn't want to follow me. And he made me a headliner immediately. And then from that, Mitzi got wind of it, and now I start even getting better spots, okay? And, and at that time, I was the doorman. I actually worked the door for... I don't know, a couple of months, and I got to leave that job, which was fantastic. And I started in line, standing in line with Yakov Shmirna. I'll tell you the first thing I ever did. We drove to Las Vegas in a bus, Yakov and I, okay. and worked for Sandy Hackett. And Yakov got to go on at 11.20, and I had to go on at 1.30 in the morning in front of two drunk guys. It was awful. It was awful. And then you take that ride. This wasn't a ride back to Burbank from here. This was a ride from Las Vegas right. back to Los Angeles. And Yakov going, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> now, how long were you doing? It seems like you weren't doing comedy that long before you actually started getting these breaks. It really wasn't. I mean, not it was, less than a year. Okay, so it was see, that, that's unheard of now. That, less than a year. was unbelievable. And then I had done a TV spot or something, but I'm in the comic strip. This is 1980. I'm at the comic strip. I'm working with Dave Couillet, Greg Travis, and somebody else. And I get a call from my agent that you just got to open for Tina Turner for two weeks at the Dunes. And the comic strip wouldn't let me out of my gig. Really? They would not let me out. And I begged them. I said, look, I'll come back for free, everything. They wouldn't let me out. But I had to go. I had to go. So I did. They never hired me again, which is okay. But I went and opened up for Tina. And then from there, I started opening up for all these other people. And at that time, Alan Thicke had a show on the air. Right, Thick so, of the Night. Thick of the Night. So I did a couple of spots on that. And Robert Goulet, young man, I like you. And he put me on, uh, on his show. And I did that a lot working with him he was a great great guy what was it like though for when you were when you're at this young part of your stage which you were you were playing clubs in here then all of a sudden you're opening for tina turner which is a much bigger venue much and, bigger and, all I mean, and all black by the way all that that's you know kind of scary when you remember it's 1980 I'm walking out to an all-black audience, and they're like looking at me like, how did you get on this show? And it was, uh, it was really scary, much bigger venue, and the, the best part of it, though, she would walk out and after her first song, repeat some of the jokes in my act. I used to do this bit, I used to be booked as Joe No No Napodi, where I would, uh, 
you know, say that because uh, I had long black hair back then. If I didn't shave, I looked uh, Persian, Iranian, uh, Iraqi. And I would do this whole bit about not looking like that and how Iranian people, they never admitted anymore. Hey, you an Iranian, ain't you? Me? No, no, not me. No, no. Well, what the hell are you then? Greek. Okay, they pretend they were some other nationality. Right. She would go out and repeat these jokes back then, which made me feel tremendous. But uh, what were you going to say? No, I was just say because you, you were playing in front of these big crowds. I mean, it's it's a step up. I mean, it's completely different. It's also instead of playing in front of drunks, you're playing in front of people who paid good money to see a show. You're not going to get Roy heckled in one of the opening for these people because it's disrespectful. You know, people pay when people pay, you know, but big the, money to see a Tina Turner. They're not going to sit there. It's different if someone pays five bucks to get in a comedy store and is drunk and they're tossing drinks back. I mean, it must sure. have just, I mean, it must have just been such an amazing, uplifting I, experience for you. I, you, Steve, back then, back then, when a comedian opened for a singer, you not only got your pay, you got the most unbelievable suite. And so help me God, this is true. I had a deal where I could just go in and sign for anything, anything. I could be sitting at a crap table or a blackjack table and say, I'd like uh, two bottles of Dom Perignon, please. And they'd bring it to me, and I'd just sign my name. Well, at that time, my dad, now remember, I had just quit college. <clears throat> he was totally disheartened because he came here from Italy and wanted his son you know, to graduate and become something. So now he's in Vegas, and when he could see what I, he couldn't believe it, and he, he just started signing my name. That's funny. Stuff. It was fantastic. But uh, yeah, it was great because all of my other peers who had done comedy for much longer than me, uh, the guys that I started with, uh, you know, they were still there at the comedy store trying to get these opening gigs. And a lot of them did, you know, uh, the George Wallaces, the Seinfelds, all these guys that I worked with. But I, but I really got in there a little before a lot of them and uh, I just couldn't believe it. Because uh, the perks were incredible. Now, as you're doing these road gigs, when do you start getting into the acting? Because I know you, 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 got, you got hit by Fonzie or you hit Fonzie or one of those things. But when, when did you start? I mean, because when you're on the road and you're opening things, you know, you can't go out for auditions, of course, because you're on the road. And of Correct. course, who's going to turn down going on the road, getting paid money when you're right. signing for stuff? I mean, it's for a comic. It's a perfect gig. Uh, How are you balancing trying to get into the acting part? And did well, you always want to get into acting? Always, always. My whole uh, modus operandi was to showcase myself, okay, to, to be seen. And the best way to do that was one night with that guy who got me to quit college, he said, let's go to the comedy store. And when I saw some of the comedians, I said, I've been doing that all throughout college. I can do that. So I put together a little act, and that's how I did it. Okay. Now, here's one of the, uh, you talk about dedication. Before I became a regular at the comedy store, which was the club. You either worked the store or the improv. So I was at the store. One of the things that I did every day was there was a television show called Make Me Laugh. Yeah. The writers were Marty Cohen and Biff Maynard. These guys were friends of mine. They got me to go into the studio, which it, it shot over here at KTLA, and they would bring in the contestants. They would screen the contestants before the show. So they needed comedians to do their act to these people. Now, what the, the contestants didn't know is if they didn't laugh, which was the object of the game, they wouldn't put them on the show. But if they did crack up, those were the contestants that they would actually put on the show. But I would go into these things and do comedy to one person, just like you, sitting there in a chair, and Marty would say, okay, here's Joe Napoti, and he's going to try to make you laugh, and here's the, you know, we're going to do the timer, and go. And then I would just start doing comedy. So I did this as like, you know, working on material and coming up with stuff just to make one person laugh. And uh, it was, uh, you know, true dedication. How many comics would do that? Oh, I know. It's like, it's like hey, people complain when you go in front of four people. It's like, at least you have a mic. You know, it's just one person. And, and, and there's no 
as it's like yeah they're just sitting there and it's like wait a second how, I got to make this person laugh exactly so so from there I got a man I got Marty's manager okay and Marty's manager you know I told him uh, I I came out here to be an actor that's my real goal and my first job was Happy Days and uh, when I got on that show I started getting a lot more because I had a huge guest star on that and uh, Scott Baio was so great and yes uh, a little bit of trivia I am the only character Leo Epps who I played a boxer who beats the crap out of um, uh, Scott Baio Chachi on the show and at one point the Fonz jumps into the ring and knocks me out okay and when he had to I take a swing at him, and then he swings at me. Well, when we did the swing, he was such a chicken, Henry Winkler. Such right. a he, he was like 40 feet back. I'd go, Henry, move up. I'm not going to hit you. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't come close to me. But I, but I also have a really funny story on that show, too. Think of a very young actor. Your very first job, okay? You're excited as hell. You're on the set. The director, who at that time was Jerry Paris, the dentist from Dick Van Dyke okay. Show, telling you to do one thing, and one of the three biggest stars in the world, which was at that time uh, Carol O'Connor, Alan Alda, and Henry Winkler. And Henry Winkler would pull, call you aside after Jerry gave you direction and go, you're not doing that. I go, what? He goes, you're not doing that. You're going to do it this way. I go, but the, but the director, the, and I'd call my manager crying. What do I do? Do I listen to Henry or do I listen to Jerry? I don't want to get fired, right? And uh, my manager had no advice whatsoever to help me at that time. So now what year was that? 1980. All this crap happened in 1980. So now you you get on Happy Days and then you start getting more gigs and i know you were in some pilots that didn't take off Uh, yeah a lot of pilots but that's the weird thing is like back then when if you were a good comic you would get there was people would just give you development deals or give you pilots correct what were some of the pilots do you remember some of the ones that didn't take off that you thought would have been great you sit there and go oh my god that would have been such a good show um well i did one with jamie gertz alex rocca and dan castellaneta Uh, for fox yeah Yeah. but i cannot for the life of me remember the name of it um i did uh oh wait i think was that called sibs i think that might have been called sibs i did another one with um oh my god and i just ran into this guy and i can't think of his name he played the detect the the lead cop uh on dexter um he did a show called unhappily ever after with with uh stephanie hodge i was to play his best friend. I did the pilot. Then they decided uh, that uh, they didn't need a best friend. I got cut from that. Then I got, I did a, uh, um, remember the show, um, uh, God, what was the name of it? It was called Over the Border the very first time, but it's uh, with Bronson Pinchot and the other guy. Perfect Strangers. Perfect Strangers. That show was originally called Over the Border. I signed the contracts for that show, and then they canceled the show, and then they they redid it as uh, as with Bronson Pinchot and and uh, what's his name from Mark the, Lynn Baker. Mark Lynn Baker. So, so you're Thank getting you're here. You're getting the work, which was great. So you, that, I mean, even I always say to people, some people you know sit there and go, you know, a lot of people go, oh, he's never gotten, you know. If you get a pilot, you're, you're a friend of the, ahead of the game. I mean, if anyone can sit there and go, I've been in a few pilots. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's the funny thing is so many times people don't know that pilots don't get picked up because of the show. They get picked up because an executive may not like it or something. Or, Correct. Or the guy, friends of mine were on the show, Sullivan and Son. And uh, Roy Wood uh, told me, and then actually one of the writers I'm friends with, you know, that was a fun show. But then the, the, the head of production changed, and then they sit there, they want to do things their own way, so they just sit there and they... they Get that. So you did. We're doing these pilots, which is great. But then now, didn't you go back to Detroit to do radio at one point? Well, in 1980. Well, here's what happened. In 1985, George Carlin's wife saw me on stage and fought like hell for me to get uh, the very uh, the fifth annual Young Comedian Special. That was the one of the biggest breaks in my career. I don't know if you remember those. Oh God, they, yeah. Okay, they picked the five hottest funniest comedians in the world to do this special and it was me charlie fleischer peewee herman i got a great story about uh, paul on on that show um and um 
who else was on it? Dale Gagne, who played piano. And then Tim Thomerson did like a, a guest set on that show. That really opened it up. I mean, I would get stopped by cops, and then the cops go, hey, aren't you the guy who does Jack Nicholson? And I'd go, yeah. And they go, do, do Jack. This actually happened on like 25 years ago on this uh, tomorrow night, on New Year's Eve night. And uh, I did Jack for him, and he goes, okay, go ahead. And he let me out of the ticket. But um, what I was going to say is, so that opened up a lot of doors. And then Binder calls me again and says, would you like to be the morning man in Detroit? Now, I had my own radio show at Central Michigan University uh, at college when I was there. So, the you know, at that point, I wanted to be close to my mom. I wanted to be close to my dad. I took the job. I went back. It was the number one radio station in Detroit, the oldest rock and roll radio station in America, possibly. And while I was there, I did something that made my dad so happy. I went back to college and got and finished the three classes and got my diploma. See, that's great. And what's also as commendable is that you had a lot of heat on you in L.A. I mean, because you, you had just done the show and you left it to do this radio show but to go back home which is good because most people you know you you had gotten the goal I mean anyone wants to get the goal of getting on TV and stuff like that to do comedy was it a I mean I know you wanted to go to see your family but was it a struggle at all because you must have had some you know I know you had some failed pilots before that but you must have had some offers coming at you that you must have sat there and went oh did you sit there and go you know what this is a good gig I can go back to my family I mean how did you make the final decision to actually do it well the first of all the money was great and second of all being close to home I figured you know what I can go there and I can um, and I can still go play clubs well that ended up not happening because uh, you know you got to get up at 3 30 in the morning four o'clock write some jokes and stuff for that day and they threw me in the booth with this guy who I really didn't uh, know very well so that was really tough but um, I started yeah I was getting a lot of offers to go and do stand-up which I I really missed but I had seen a couple of my childhood heroes and what they became, and I thought, well, I'll just use this as a stepping stone and, and go to the, uh, you know, to the next uh, level here, because uh, I grew up at 15 years old doing voices on The Dick Purton Show, which was, he was like uh, the, the biggest DJ uh, on a pop station in Detroit. So I did a lot of, you know, characters and stuff on his show. And I thought this is going to be great, but it didn't work out uh, mutually. And then I went back to stand up, back to Las Vegas, and just started working again and uh, met my wife. And within a year, got a series. Okay, so that was, okay, that was after you left Detroit. Yeah, that was. I went there in 1986. I was there for one year, and then within, uh, I came back to LA in '87 and uh, uh, started working again. '92 got got the series. So, how did the series come about? Had you did they sit there? Did they know you, or did you go through a long audition process? Because oh, it was huge. I've heard back then that the audition process was like. A pain in the ass. It like was, you went back and you, I mean, even in movies like Robert Romanus, who was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, said he went back six times to the part of the moon. I mean, like, and you sit there and, and it's not like now it's one or two, but then it's like, so how long did you go? And who were you up against? You're probably up against some big names. Too. A lot of big comedians. And I, I just and it was can't. For, it was just for Viper, right? This is for Viper. Yeah. Which played on NBC. And then just the way you told that story about Sullivan and Sons, after the first year, we debuted at number 11. 11. Which, just me interrupt you real quick, back then, people just, you know, is back then, number 11 back then is basically like number one, like bigger than a number one show now because there was so many, there's no, there's Outlets. not a lot of choices. Yeah. And if, I mean, there was probably how many millions of viewers in that a week? I mean, it must have been crazy. It was crazy. It was huge. But the president of NBC didn't like our show but the president of paramount loved our show and at that time they created upn well listen they said don't worry we're canceling the show but we're going to pick it up and the show ran for another four years on upn now there's all just like you said there's so many outlets today i just went to an audition last week a commercial audition okay for an italian guy who could speak italian and 
I saw a guy, I'm not going to tell you who, who's been on television in a lead role for seven years straight, these last seven years. And here he is auditioning for a commercial. And I said to him, what the hell are you doing here? You've got to have more money and other, and he goes, well, you know, and, and that's the problem. Okay, I used to always say this. The best thing about Viper, it was on for five years and nobody knew about it. The worst thing about Viper, it was on for five years and nobody knew about it. But no, but you, but you got good reviews and they kept you, didn't great. They, they? I'm the only original yeah, character. So, so, and that must have been great because like anything, you're probably sitting there going, great, we finally get a good rank. We're number 11. And, and, and then great. they and cancel. And you're thinking, okay, well, yeah. you know, this 11, you know, we're going to be on for a few years. All right. And then they cancel it. And then you just think it's a, a done deal. And then, what, do you know, did you ever find out why they decided for just you to come back? I mean, and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, what happened was there were three stars, me, Dorian Harewood, Jim McCaffrey, and the other two didn't want to move to uh, Vancouver because we moved the show to Vancouver because just like, you know, uh, the Vancouver was called the Hollywood of the North. Everybody was moving there. So all these productions, I mean, I ran into more movie stars and TV stars in Vancouver than I do here. Uh, we all stayed at the whole same hotel and um, it, it was, uh, it was you know, that's that's what happened. So I I'm sitting here going, Jesus, it's still a series. I, I, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I did it. And then and it was it was unbelievable because it, it gives you, you know, monetary security for, for a long time. And then it went into um, uh, reruns and stuff and syndication, which is what their main goal was, Paramount's main goal, get 82 episodes at that time and get it into syndication. And... Um, and then that turned out to get me a, a, up for a lot of other roles, and that's how Casper came about because of that. Yeah. No, okay. So now, when you when you first of all, we'll get to, I want to get to Casper, but when you did the show after the oh, when I was in UPN, did you think it would run? Did you think it would run for four episodes, four seasons? Or Never. Did you, did you sit there and think one year? You have to be gun shy because it already got canceled. So you probably have that bit, not that bitterness, but like this happened. I mean, you must and, have been, and I was very distraught because none of my compadres were there. None of my co-stars, you know, Jim and Dorian, who made the show. I mean, you, you don't change. Uh, you don't change those elements in a show. It's like when the Dukes of Hazards they replaced them. Everyone said, exactly. "We're not watching their cousins." Exactly. The hell with them. We don't. We want to see Bo and Duke. We don't. I mean, <laughs> correct. So um, th- that was real. That was a real bummer for me. But then you know they they um, they got this new cast and the show still did really well and i was supposed to be the comic foil on the show but then the second year the producer came to me and said hey we want you to toughen up a little bit grow a goatee and uh, start lifting weights and you know because we're going to have you do these uh, action scenes where you're shooting people and stuff because i was just the computer tech guy who fixed the car and uh, ran the motor pool. So uh, my character really completely changed. But, you know, it had lasted another year. And I thought, okay, great. Then it lasted another year. Okay, great. My wife still hadn't moved up. We purchased our first home. And then it ran another year. And we're like, oh, my God, you've got to move up. My son was just born at that time. And we decided, okay, let's do it. We're going to move to Vancouver for the fifth year of this show. We sell our house our baby's born, and I get a call. The show is canceled. See, that's what I, there's so many. It so happens like that so oh, many times, and that's why people they have to be so resilient in this business because things happen. Now, did you like going to Vancouver? I mean, leaving, I actually Vancouver is a really cool uh, city. You, you got the winners. I mean, I, I grew up near Philadelphia, and I was there forever. And you know, but you get so used to this weather out here. I mean, yeah, you yeah. must have go, coming from well, Detroit, it, the weather was to, awful to L.A. and yeah. then going to Vancouver. It's like wait a second, June, July, and August. In Vancouver and a little bit of September is unbelievable. But I, I, everybody knows this, and everybody says this who's spent any time in Vancouver. The weather is worse than Detroit or Philadelphia because it's this bone-chilling, humid cold. It rained, and it would get so cold it gets into your bones, and you can't shake it. You know, compared to uh, just a cold day in Detroit with six feet of snow, it's dark. It's gloomy. The you know it's 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 not a, a fun place to be during those months. But when it's nice in Vancouver, it's paradise. 
It's absolute paradise. So in the show, how did it get into Casper? You said because this show led you to getting into Casper. And well, that, this, uh, and that, was that instruction? Is that your first voice work you did or had you done voice work? Earlier? Oh, no, no. I had done a lot of animation. Okay. Uh, now, how did you parlay into that? Well, I, I've always, I've always, with my first agents, uh, I was just doing voices, you know, and I auditioned uh, for an agent and they hired me and I did... Um, I did a, a lot of episodic, a lot of CD-ROMs and stuff back then, and uh, I had a series called What a Mess, which is a famous English book. It was on uh, uh, ABC, and now Disney bought it, and it's still in syndication all over the world. But um, what happened was I was doing Viper, and I was in my second year of Viper and really feeling great. I mean, you know you're making a lot of money compared to club money as a stand-up everything is great you got your house you're feeling on top of the world a lot of it people in the industry are starting to take note you're having all these meetings and stuff you're feeling pretty good and i didn't think much of this movie casper i i thought okay and when you were saying earlier about the audition process i had to audition six or seven times for viper it was it was ridiculous how many times they brought me back, and on the very last audition, I, I transgress here, but I'll, I'll come back. Digress here, I'll come back. But on the very last audition for the entire network, as we're walking down the stairs uh, after the audition, the producers right next to me, and the guy who had auditioned right before me is in front of me. And as we're walking down the stairs, he looks at me and he mouths the words. So the kid in front of me, and I can't remember his name, but he was a comedian. Uh, he mouths the words, you got it. Like that, you got it. And I went, what? And he, and he goes, he throws his hands up in frustration because he doesn't want the kid to know because you're not supposed to know yet. Right. And by the time I left the building and went to my managers, he said to me, you got to sign the contracts. You got it. I go, I did? And he goes, yeah. So for Casper now, I'm feeling on top of the world. And I really I, I really worked on the character, St Uncle Stretch. And um, and I thought of him as Slip Mahoney from the Bowery Boys. Remember him? Yeah. So I thought, okay, this is the attitude I need. And I went in, and I auditioned once and twice and three times. The third time, Robert Patrick is there with me. You know, uh, uh, Terminator. Terminator. Now he's on uh, Scorpion. Uh, yeah, now he's on Scorpion. Great guy, really great guy, and and he's talking to me and talking up a storm, and I'm like, please, I just need to, you know, get this part down, and and um, so finally I go into the audition, and this is the last audition, and this is an absolute true story. This is what nailed uh, Casper for me. I'm in the audition, and Steve, you know as as well as I do, the worst thing you can ask comedians to do sometimes is to ad lib. So we're in this room, everybody's there, and the producers say, we'd just like you to ad lib now. Just take the line, but just ad lib. And this kid, who was not a comedian, starts ad-libbing. And I had the next line. And he goes on, I am not exaggerating, for like three minutes, which you know, it's a long, it's as long as I'm talking now. A long time, just on and on and on. And I get so upset at this guy that I lose it. And as the characters stretch, I tell him to shut the F up. As the character, I go, <laughs> shut that up. And he looks at me. Everybody looks at me. I mean, dead silence. And then I just continue with, with the line. Well, after the earthquake, the big Northridge earthquake, I get the call. I, get the, I got the show. And I go back in. And who taps me on the shoulder? I turn around. It's Steven Spielberg. And he says, I just want to say congratulations and this. And I go, well, thank you so much. And, you know, and I, I, I barely can speak. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, you don't turn around every day and there's right, Spielberg exactly. right there. And he looks at me. And the next thing he says is, yes, I really enjoyed your audition tape. And I went, my audition tape? 
And he goes, yeah, that's why you got the part. He goes, that's the attitude I want you to keep with this character throughout the movie. And I said, whatever you want, sir, <laughs> whatever you want. And I, and I got Casper that way. So, so, when you're in a, a, so I got Casper by telling a guy to shut the F well, you're up. you're from Detroit. Yeah. It's, that's good. You're from, you know, we, it, we say Detroit's like an East Coast city. Yeah. Now, it must be like, when you do this voice work, though, it must not be hard, but because you're a comic and you're used to being on stage in front of people, and then... When you're acting, you're used to interacting with people when you're in Viper and stuff like that. Sure. It must be hard for you just because it's sort of solitary in the studio, right? It's basically when you're doing the voice stuff, like with oh, yeah, Casper, yeah. it's just you, right? Yeah, and a couple of engineers and stuff, and they don't really laugh, and you know, but yeah, it is. You, I'd, I'd love to have some people there to give you a little feedback or at least hear a laugh here and there and go, oh, but you know, the directors, their only intent is to get you recorded and move on to the next guy right. for their part. So, you know, they just want to get you in and out, okay? Um, and, yeah, it's a little tough, but you gotta, you got to know what you're doing. you got to know your character, and, you, and, you, and if you're good at your work, you'll know what will work and what won't. And, you know, and then you just hope and pray that it does work. And then from after Casper, you also got some TV work from that, from the series, Casper series, right? Oh, we did a cartoon uh, series for... Uh, I think two or three years after that, which was unbelievable. That was great because did all these commercials for Pepsi and, uh, you know, all the other sponsors of, of the movie Casper, which, you know, to date, uh, people don't realize this, that the, the movie's made over $500 million and they play it every year at uh, uh, Halloween. On every channel, it's unbelievable. It's because it's Casper. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, uh, we you, you told me some stories earlier. I want to I want to go over with you. I want to hear about the uh, the Jay Leno thing because that that cracks me up because that's just something that it, to me it, it, it as a comic it doesn't it would piss me off a little bit. Well, just because, not piss me off, but it doesn't make sense that you know you're good enough. I that. you know I've but never I've never story. told this story, but my wife was there and she witnessed it. But Jay is a good friend of mine. Um, I consider him a friend, and I've known Jay for 30 years. Back to the comedy. The, absolutely, to the comedy store. And Jay Leno came up to me when I was first starting, and he said these words to me. Uh, hey, listen, I can't do Jay Leno, but he said to me, basically, um, you are very funny, and no one gets more laughs than you do on stage. He goes, you only need one thing. And I go, what? And he said, jokes. You have no jokes. And then and it's true because I just, uh, I do bits and, and characters and, and stuff. And, um, but Jay Leno, uh, who is, and every comedian knows this, he is like the king of the nightclubs uh, oh, yeah. back then. Nobody's better. Nobody's better. But uh, this was a little disheartening back then. I was opening up for Robert Coulet. He was at Caesars. I was at the Dunes, and he called me, and he asked me to sell the most endearing part of my act, which is all my Italian stuff. And a lot of it is things that my father actually said to me. So it's very close to me and my heart. And uh, he asked if he could purchase it. And, and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, yeah, you know, if uh, you want to sell it and stuff, uh, you know, I just thought. I said, Jay, I, ca I can't sell you that. That's my best stuff. It's the, the stuff of, uh, you know, the, between me and my dad. And stuff. I said, let me do it on the show. Well, you know, I, I, and then he just, you know, then he drifts off into that thing and the, and the phone call ends. But um, uh, he loved that part of my act. He absolutely loved it because he does so much mother and father and family stuff in his in his act. But um, I was always hoping and, and waiting throughout the years, you know, that he would call and say, "Hey, come on, do do your do your uh, stuff." Because the beauty of me, uh, Steve, is well, the the beauty of me. But I'm not I'm not a household name like the guys who used to open for me, Tim Allen and and people like that who are huge stars. So I I'm not that recognizable. Um, uh, like a comic, you know, as much as acting. I never made my, my mark there. So, but as you know, too, at our age, it's very hard to get a spot unless you're a big star on television today to do your act. But my, that I still do it in nightclubs and, uh, and a lot of corporate gigs that I do. 
and it absolutely destroys. Everyone can relate to that material about me. Now, do you still like getting up on stage? I mean, I love it. I mean, now how often do you get up? Well, I produce my own comedy shows nowadays for nonprofit uh, organizations called Jonah Pody's Comedy Slam, where I take four or five comedians and we uh, do a fundraiser for these. Th- or I'll get a private. I just did one uh, uh, last week in Detroit um, for uh, a bunch of firefighters where I get up on stage and um, I uh, for a private organization. And I do the same thing. But it's a, like a Vegas type show where the comics come in. They only do 10 to 15 minutes. I host the show and, and it's great. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off of me because I don't have to do 45 minutes to an hour. But I just did a show uh, for these people and I literally did an hour of total ad lib because I'd done it four years in a row and uh, they'd seen my act. Right. Okay. So they just said, we just want you to go up and be funny. So I ad-libbed for an hour, made fun of these people. And then just for the hell of it, I did a joke from my act that I had done a couple years earlier and they laughed. And then I bitched them out saying, how could you laugh at that? I already done that joke for you. But you guys are so old, none of you can remember it. And so then I realized, well, my God, I can come back next year and do my whole act again for these. But, but there is, you know as, as well as I do, if you're an actor, a movie star, if you're um, uh, a musician, although that's pretty good, but there is nothing, nothing that compares to getting on stage with a mic by yourself naked and do well you're not completely not naked, naked no. but and doing uh the stand-up there's nothing better in the world so you did all the stand-up you, you, you open for all these acts you know you've been on tv you've done voices how'd you get into writing a kid's book because i know you just came out with a kid's book i mean oh. that's that's such a it's such a you know you don't you don't think like you know you don't think about i mean i know one actor and a guy named paul Carafotis who uh was in falcon crest and a bunch of stuff he came out with like, some kids books charlie bubbles and uh, it's such a huge market and kids need good reading as you know because i said you know it's the for me personally i think the kids the uh the learning curve have changed i know i think you know when you're older you know we grew up you know i mean i always call my neighbors mr and mrs you know yeah i, always, I still do you call your aunt i always call my aunt ruth even when i was 30 i'd call her my aunt ruth and i think just Kids' behaviors change somewhat, and I, I think because there's not the values and the kids and not, morals, they're not going out. And you know, like for us, I mean, you grew up in you know Michigan. You know, people, your parents would just let you out, and you run out with the 87 kids, and no one got in trouble, no one Correct. got hurt, no one got. In, I mean, you get in fights, but no one. It was a right, fight. Right, as right. soon as someone I give up, it was done. Right. So I think the values have changed. But you've done all this. You've done all this acting and writing and worked in nightclubs. You know, it's not like the person you think that would write. A kids book how did it happen and what, what what made you decide to go into that venue have you written stuff before uh no what well scripts uh my partner and i we sold a script a, a while ago to fox family um a few years ago but what happened was when i was 16 one of my very first jobs is i worked for the city of southfield and one of the things i did is i worked for the library they had taken a school bus ripped out all the seats put in carpeting and a puppet stage and we went to all the schools and did puppet stories and storytelling and i realized that i have this this camaraderie this thing with with children where they can look at me and they go oh he's just like us he's just bigger you know because the mentality is there and i can think of of humor for children and make them laugh and it's a clean appropriate humor so um what happened was I was making breakfast for, I had come up with some ideas about uh, children's books, but I I didn't really put anything down. And then um, I was making breakfast for my family and I was making eggs, okay? And and, uh, my son wanted eggs a certain way. My daughter wanted hers a certain way. My wife wanted hers a certain way. And I like mine a certain way. And I was like feeling completely overwhelmed. And as I'm sitting there making these eggs, all of a sudden, I swear to God, this egg just started talking to me like it just came to life. And I thought of this idea where this egg is called eggy yolk. And then I had to put it in the form of a story. And I thought, oh, my God, eggy yolk and the dirty rotten dozen. And it came to life. And then through after a 100 drafts, um, 
I uh, I was actually um, at uh, Rick D's studio here in Burbank, and I was pitching a couple of other ideas for him that he wanted to hear. And as I walked out, I said, oh, by the way, look at this thing that I'm doing. And they looked at it, and he said, who have you shown that to? And I said, well, not anybody really. And they, they said, we, w- we want to do it. They, they were hooked on that uh, immediately. So um, we started working on it, you know, for these last two years. And we came up with this book called EggyOak.com. Uh, Eggy Oak and the Dirty Rotten Dozen. The website is EggyOak.com. And you can purchase a book right off EggyOak.com or Rick.com. And it's a great book with morals and values and and uh, uh, integrity with two Gs. It's, it's, a, it's a very funny book with a lot of wordplay, a lot of puns. And I, and I just got back from Detroit, uh, where I was there doing the show for the firefighters. But I also did my first public uh, reading of the book and signing an autograph uh, for an elementary school for 350 kids. So when I do these shows, I play a little video of myself on Casper. What a mess. I'm also the new voice of Jean Lafoot in the Captain Crunch series, uh, the web series. So I play this. And then I end it with Sweet Life on Deck, and they all, that episode's played to death. They all know who Uncle Marco is. And then um, I come out and I do five minutes of stand-up for children, which is really cool. And then I uh, read two original stories. The first one's called Monster Mush, without illustrations that I'm working on. Uh, Really funny story. Uh, about a little boy who wakes up in the morning, smells a terrible odor that's going to ruin his birthday party, and then uh, he goes all through the house to try and figure out what it is, and he figures out at the end it's his breath. He didn't brush okay. his teeth. Okay. That's good. Yeah, so I wrote that because of my son, because when he was a little boy, he would never brush his teeth, and I thought, how can I do this in a funny way? And I wrote the story for him. And then I read my new book, Eggy Oak and the Dirty Rotten Dozen, and then I take questions and answer. And then I'll tell you, it's as fun as doing a Saturday night in the biggest club uh, doing stand-up. That's cool. The kids are unbelievable. We, we have a few minutes left. And okay. uh, you said your son's here, and uh, we, you know, now, 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 tell us about your son and did you <clears throat> his, his performing and all that. Well, uh, my son uh, is Gabriel, and uh, he's um, he's always been uh, a quiet kid, completely the opposite of me. And uh, but he started showing me a little bit of his talent, you know, uh, a few years ago. So I got him an agent. And the kid has had, I, I had a, you know, we, we just talked about me and my career and stuff. And I always had a pretty good batting average, you know, uh, for, as far as callbacks and getting work and stuff. So uh, I got him an agent and he's had four auditions. <clears throat> he's had three callbacks and a booking. He booked a commercial with Will Arnett last year. Okay. Which is great for Best Buy. So he, he got hooked. But he does a lot of voices, and, uh, and, and he's a great rapper. But uh, he does some great impressions, and he's open for me three times on my comedy slams. And, um, yeah, I brought him here. Give us, I have a few minutes to give us, uh, you know, give us your three top impressions. Three uh, top impressions. Uh, Re- what would Regis Philbin say about this show? You know, Steve, this show is fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm buzzing over this show. I'm, 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 I'm listening to all these stories, and it's fantastic show business. I've been in it for 87 years. <laughs> That's, That's great. good. And Regis is, Regis is hard to do. For like so many people, just they just do the. I'm out of control. I'm, yeah, right, right. at least you're doing it. That's good. Now, now, and, he, and he's 19. Not, uh, I, 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 I challenge I'm, any 19-year-old to tell me who reads. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised he even knows who reads. Uh, yeah, that's now. Now, give me, give me a more. Okay, for 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 more of your demographic, not our demographic. Uh, all right. Well, um, Larry the Cable Guy. Man, I don't know what everybody's talking about right now, but Tracy Morgan is angry at all these people, man. They running around yelling at me, telling me I can't get people pregnant and riding limos. I won't do that, man. That's, that's a white guy. That's a white guy doing. And Tracy Morgan is just—he's so funny. He is amazing. And I give, give me a, give me a, give me your. Well, first of all, what's your favorite one to do? Who, uh, well, I love, I love Regis. He was like. The first one I ever did, uh, when you guys were talking about impressions, I um, I started doing them in like tenth grade. I'm 19 now, so when I was like 16, um, and I I started doing him. 
I was watched the uh, Rush Hour movies, and I loved uh, the contrast of like Jackie Chan's voice and Chris Tucker, and Chris Tucker just, hey man, Jackie man, Lee, everybody gonna die, I'm gonna die, you gonna die, we all gonna die, Lee, we all gonna die. And uh, so he was really fun. I uh, started doing Everybody Does. Uh, Christopher Walken, man, I gotta tell you, Steve, it's a great show here you got. I mean, I did Peter Pan recently, but nothing compares to Cooper's show. Um, now, how, how do you decide who you're gonna do? Like, well, I mean, when, you, when you sit there and go, I gotta do a new impression this week, like, what, do you sit there and watch someone go, hey, I like that? I mean, how do you decide what you're gonna do? If I, I'm, I, uh, I don't read a ton. Most of my uh, entertainment <laughs> comes from just why I'm on YouTube all YouTube, the time. Of um, He's 19, yeah. YouTube. I, yeah. uh, I, lo- just, I love watching movies. And if I hear a voice that I love, I'll go, oh, I, I gotta try to learn that voice. Um, he, does, he does Gilbert Gottfried talking to Louis Black. Let's do that, because we have about three minutes left. So all right. Listen, Louis, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and I was at Airflick, and those bastards cut me off after I made some derogatory comments about a tsunami. Well, listen, Gilbert, this is Lewis Black, and, you know, the problem with your Aflac company thing is that all the corporate industries in America are cutting off the entire lower class and middle class because they want to separate the 1% from the 99%, and it's driving me crazy. Hey, he actually almost looks like he's going to have the aneurysm like Lewis yeah, always know, does on I stage. Know, yeah. Well, that was great. Thank you, Gabriel. Yeah, Glad thank you, you. And uh, Joe, we have a few minutes left. Um, yeah. What's coming up for you? Give me all your info. Now. Are you doing some more show? I mean, I'm doing. I'm. When's uh, your next show? I'm. I'm starting to. We're going to start booking schools uh, and uh, bookstores. Uh, right after the holiday, and I'm going back to Detroit. I've got a couple of comedy slams uh, in Detroit that I'm going to do. I'm possibly going to be doing one in uh, Pleasanton up here in uh, in California, but um, I'm mainly concentrating right now on um, on acting. I just did an episode on that series, uh, Kingdom, uh, which is on Directv. Nick Jonas's new show okay. about MMA because. Um, uh, uh, they they hired me as a ring announcer, and I just showed him, uh, you know, a uh, uh, video, and they offered me the part uh, because I've done a little ring announcing. Is that something you like to do? I or? love doing ring announcing. I, I'm a big uh, MMA fan, and uh, the biggest fight of the decade is coming up this Saturday night. Yeah, I heard someone, me and my girlfriend watching a football game, and this couple next to us kept talking about, who who is it? Daniel Cormier and John Jones, the two baddest dudes on the planet. Neither one of them have ever been defeated, and uh, it's just going to be uh, great. It's on pay-per-view. But uh, So I'm a big MMA fan, and I've ring announced not only for MMA, but I used to ring announce all the time for uh, Dan Goosen, Goosen Tudor, and I've also... Um, ring announced for Glory, uh, which is uh, kickboxing. So, okay. and, and you know, I'm 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 in the racquetball. I used to be a racquetball pro, so I'm I I love athletics and I love sports, and that's my other little part of the world. But mainly this year, uh, be pushing the book. Uh, at eggyoak.com and go into uh, schools and uh, if you want me to come and read your school uh, go to the website check it out you'll see everything there and then you can email us and we'll uh, set up a, a, a visit is the book only available on the website right now it's only we're, we're yeah we're doing it like a grassroots style okay. but and and on rick.com and now, is it just the book? You can't get a Kindle. It's just the book right now. Right now, it's just the book. Okay, it's just the book. We and it literally just came out like last Friday. So I saw that, and I was on Rick's website. I yeah, saw that. Yeah, yeah. So we're just starting uh, to experiment with these things. But the main thing about this book, uh, Steve, is it's really a cartoon series, and that's our our focus. I already have three sequels in the works, and we're going to try and move it to the next level and make it a a cartoon series. Which uh, you know, when you think about it, the most fragile thing on earth. What's more fragile than an egg? Exactly. Which we all are. And he's uh, really kind of a hero because he he, uh, ends all the conflict without any violence, but he has morals, wit, humor, uh, integrity with two G's, 
And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of fun for kids. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. And now your website's joenapodi.com. Yeah, okay. joenapodi.com. Do you tweet? I don't tweet, but I Facebook and I... Uh, I um my daughter literally like last Friday got me on Instagram, okay. but I still don't know what I'm doing on we'll there. We'll get you on it. But anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. <laughs> and my pleasure. Thank it was you, great. Gabriel. Uh, people follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. Uh, at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. I tweet a lot. Well, of you got to teach me how to do it. I'll t- I will teach you how to do it. It's easy. <laughs> okay. I, it took me a while because I'm I'm not good at that stuff. Also, go to my website CooperTalk.net. I have over 325 episodes up on there. You can email me Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I'll get back to you. Tell me what guests you want to hear. You know, I'm always trying to book a lot of comics, actors, writers. Also, if you go to iTunes or Stitcher, just type in Cooper Talk, one word, find me there. I want to give a shout out to AllRadioX.com, who plays my show every Saturday. I want to give a shout out to Wildfire Radio, back there in South Jersey. We're starting to play my show on January 6th, so that's on Saturday nights, uh, whatever the date is. Please listen to that. So that's about it. Uh, Check out Joe. Check out EggyYoke.com. you got to check that out, because it looks like a good book, and kids need a good message. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. Happy New Year, and you guys have a safe New Year. Was I hip?